This is the AI Health Podcast, where we explore the ways in which AI will transform healthcare, biotech, and medicine through conversations with entrepreneurs, investors, and scientists. Hey, I'm your co-host Pranav Rajpurkar. And I'm Adrielle Saporta. And you're listening to the AI Health Podcast. Today, we'll be speaking with Julie Yu. Julie is a general partner at Andreessen Horowitz, where she leads investments in healthcare technology. She focuses on companies that are modernizing access, payment structure, and general experience. Some companies that she's on the board of include Acasa, who we spoke with a few episodes back, Bayesian Health, and Firefly Health. Before joining Andreessen, she was co-founder and chief product officer at Kairos, which modernizes patient access by better connecting patients with care. We'll be talking with Julie a lot today about digital health and how new companies are leveraging technology to compete with legacy providers in novel ways. We'll discuss what an operating system for primary care could look like and how companies are targeting consumers more directly. One particularly important theme that'll run through this conversation is, as always, data. One of the key advantages of many of these digital health companies over legacy competitors is a much more sophisticated use of patient data. And so I feel like it's important to maybe first give some context on how data is being used today and and what protections current regulations do and do not provide. In a previous episode with Professor Zach Kahani, we went into some detail on policy around data interoperability. In that episode, we focused on legislation that has been encouraging digitization of healthcare data and the standards that have been created to make it more uniform across the healthcare system and easier for patients to share and access. Now, we're going to focus more on some of the protections of that data and the market that currently exists around it. What do you mean by the market that currently exists around it? Yes, selling patient data is already a multi-billion dollar market. HIPAA protects personal health information, which is healthcare data in which individual patients can be identified. We'll go into more detail on HIPAA protections in a bit, but to start, if patient data is de-identified, then providers are free to sell it however they please, unless they receive explicit patient refusal. And I feel like I don't remember ever being asked if I'd like to refuse. (laughs) So what's de-identification? And how much protection does it actually provide? The data is considered de-identified when there is no reasonable basis to believe that the information can be used to identify an individual. And there are some pretty detailed rules governing how to do this. Um, They're outdated, and many folks are worried that these protections may not be adequate. There's some examples out there of researchers re-identifying patients with just birthday, zip code, and gender. Yeah, that sounds problematic. <laughs> and who is the data currently being sold to? Well, just about anyone you can think of that could make use of large healthcare data sets. Uh, pharma is a particularly attractive and lucrative target. Analytics companies that design predictive algorithms, computer vision companies that are designing diagnostic algorithms, some of the examples. Um, Last year, Google signed a deal with HCA Healthcare, which handles about 5% of hospital services in the US in order to build programs to inform medical decisions. 
Around 20 healthcare systems have backed this startup, Truveta, which covers around 15% of clinical data in the U.S. And is there anything that these providers are doing with this de-identified data? Well, they're spinning out companies too. So for example, Mount Sinai spun out a company to improve clinical diagnostics. And last year, the Mayo Clinic spun out two companies to design AI algorithms on electrocardiogram data and integrate remote patient devices with algorithms. Okay. And so what can companies do with this personal health information in which patients can actually be identified? Okay. So here's where we can get into some of the details of HIPAA. Let's start with the background. The law describes covered entities, which are health plans, providers, and healthcare clearinghouses, which are basically data managing middlemen between these two. These covered entities must be HIPAA compliant, meaning they adhere to standards that protect and secure patient data. Now, these covered entities may also engage with what are called business associates in order to help carry out their healthcare activities and functions. And when that happens, the business associate must also then be HIPAA compliant. And what do you mean by healthcare activities and functions? Uh, HIPAA provides a pretty detailed outline. Um, but generally things that go into running the business of healthcare, things like performing utilization reviews, helping with claims processing, or de-identifying the data in order for the hospital to then profit from it, as we talked about above. And they do not need patients' written authorization in order to disclose information in these ways. Okay. So that makes sense because hospitals and health plans I'm sure don't have the resources to always do everything in-house. And what if they want to use your data in a way that doesn't fall into one of those specific functions? A covered entity can't sell protected health information to a business associate or any other third party for that party's own purposes. And they can't sell lists of patients or in release to third parties without obtaining authorization from each person on the list. Okay. So no outright sale. That's good. What about some interesting edge cases? Um, the rules around marketing are pretty important. In general, covered entities cannot use personal health information for marketing purposes. But there are some important exceptions that are especially relevant for our conversation around digital health. It's not considered marketing if the communication is made for the treatment of the individual. So if a primary care physician refers an individual to a specialist for a follow-up test, that's allowed, or if a physician provides free samples of a prescription drug. And the other important exception is when the information is used for case management or care coordination for the individual, or to direct or recommend alternative treatments, therapies, healthcare providers, or settings of care. Uh, this is a bit wordy, but I'm keeping it verbatim with the government's wording to be precise. Yeah, so I don't really understand what that means. So can you give maybe some examples? Yeah, so for example, sharing a patient's medical record with several behavior management programs to determine the best fit or sharing medical record information with various nursing homes in the course of recommending that the patient be transferred from a hospital bed to a nursing home. Got it. Okay. So... It seems like having robust data about your patients would not only be an asset for how you manage your own operations, but could also potentially give you quite a bit of leverage in the ecosystem more broadly. And so even if you can't just sell the data, clearly this can make you a very valuable partner for these behavioral management programs or nursing homes. 
It's a great observation um, and ties us nicely back to the business of digital health, especially since many of these companies really aim to get an edge by being very data sophisticated. Uh, and we'll talk with Julie about this data ecosystem a bit and how she expects that it continue to evolve. We'll talk about the different pieces of expertise required to make a healthcare company successful. Really excited to have her on the show with us today. Julie, thank you so much for joining us on the show. We really appreciate it. Yeah, excited to be here. So I want to start with something that you wrote a couple of years ago, which is digital health is today where the internet was back in 1999. Yeah, sure. And just for context, you know, I've been in digital health for, gosh, roughly about 16 years or so. And so, you know, part of that statement was based on having the game film of, you know, seeing the last decade plus of what's occurred in our industry. And then obviously the explosion that's occurred in the last couple of years and really recognizing what a milestone moment it is. And, you know, to double click on that analogy of being the 1999 of the internet era, really what I was referring to there is when you think about, you know, that time um, of the quote unquote internet, it was actually pre like what we know the internet as today. So, you know, that was the era of bulletin board servers or BBSs. You guys are probably too young to remember this, but, you know, they were these sort of individual kind of communication hubs that you would literally like dial up into each one. And each one had like a specific content set. It was kind of like a message board, basically. And then each one had its own persona and its own users and whatnot. And you had like separate identities for each BBS. Wow. And each BBS was completely like an island, right? They were not connected to each other. You didn't have a shared identity across them and you know, very distinct content and user sets. And so mm. in many ways, like I liken that to kind of what digital health is today, right? Yes, we have things that have been digitized that are available in virtual first form, but largely speaking, they kind of are representative of the way that care delivery has been delivered in the past, where they continue to be, at least up to very recently, fairly transactional, certainly not interoperable or connected in any way, shape or form. And the context about you as an individual is not shared across multiple digital health services. And so that's a little bit of, you know, the context there. And then after BBS was when, you know, of course, Mark Andreessen built Netscape and you really saw what we would know the internet as today, where you have a unique identity that sort of follows you across the internet, that you have connectivity and the ability to transact, you know, across multiple platforms using your own digital wallet, so to speak, and the ability to communicate, you know, with various communities in an asynchronous and real-time fashion. So that's really how I see digital health evolving now is really moving towards that kind of paradigm beyond just doing things that we historically have been doing offline in the digital form, but rather reimagining the way that we can deliver care um, in a virtual first fashion. I'm sort of like curious why you think now is a transformative moment in automated and digital healthcare innovation. A couple of things I would say. One is I argue that digital health companies are actually the ones who are at the tip of the spear of the movement of value-based care. Mm. So, you know, those who have been following the sort of unicorn that is BBC, meaning like everyone knows what it is, but no one's really seen it in real life type of thing, <laughs> um, you know, that many have sort of depended on incumbents to largely be the innovators around value-based care models and, and adoption of said models, but to assume that an entire trillion dollar industry that is so mired in a fee-for-service chassis would overnight completely change its business model and take on you know, that level of risk was probably a pipe dream. And so what you are seeing though is digital health companies saying, listen, we are the ones who have somebody to prove, right? We are the ones who are developing new care models, you know, aren't gonna be given the same level of credit as traditional players if we just simply go 
to payers with the same exact value proposition as them. So we are the ones who are willing to bet on a novel care model that we should be willing to take risk on. And they're capitalized in such a way that they can do that. So that's one of the things that I think is driving this sea change in thinking about what value-based care looks like is you see entire companies built from scratch whose entire business model is predicated on value and continuous care models versus relying on fee-for-service and then having to change. So I think that's one big thing. The second is that given what's happened during the pandemic in the last couple of years, incumbents are just threatened as you know care gets pushed outside of the traditional four walls of the hospital. So if I'm a health system executive for decades, for centuries, I've you know, relied on a certain business model to prop me up. You know, now all of a sudden there's this urgency to invest in novel solutions and have a strategy for diversifying my revenue, have a strategy for you know, mitigating staffing risk, which is obviously a huge challenge and, and priority right now for any you know, provider organization. And it's really just no longer tenable to solely remain kind of these human labor intensive, high cost facility-based businesses. And so they are also driving a sea change of desire to invest in novel digital health solutions to simply survive and remain kind of relevant in the future. Can I ask uh, who these incumbents are and who the digital health companies are that are challenging these incumbents? Sure. Yeah. I mean, probably the one that is top of mind for me, just given my past life as an entrepreneur who sold to health systems. So health systems, I think, are probably a canonical example of this. So we're talking, you know, in your backyard, the NGBs of the world, you know, in our backyard, the Stanford Healths of the world, who, again, historically have been, their business model has been predicated on, we have these, you know, high acuity tertiary quaternary care facilities where we are world renowned for doing XYZ. And because of our position in the market, we're able to have tons of negotiating leverage with our payers. And therefore we get favorable rates for the types of services that we uniquely deliver. Those are the types of organizations that today, basically their doors got shut down, right, during the pandemic and essentially only those who had either COVID or emergency needs were the ones who were receiving services all of a sudden and everything else just completely shut down. And then coming out of the, well, hopefully coming out of the pandemic, the consumer behavior and even provider behavior, frankly, now our mind goes first to like, why would we have to go in person if we could do something decentralized, virtual in our home or in our community? And so, you know, the entire paradigm of care is being flipped on its head in a way that health systems, like the ones I mentioned, are just completely ill-equipped to uh, function in. So that's kind of the incumbent side of the equation. And the thousands of digital health companies, many of which we funded, are those that, you know, I'm sort of referring to on the other end of the stick, which are providing a patient-centric experience, actually using direct-to-consumer tactics to acquire the attention of patients who might have, you know, whether it's a low acuity need, even specialty needs increasingly, as we're seeing it. And are covered by insurance, by the way, on the back end as well. And so, you know, lots of the traditional reasons why digital health didn't take off are now mitigated in the form of business model. And so those are the two sort of ends of the pool that we're referring to here. So you said these incumbents have negotiation power with the payers. And now these digital health companies will change that power dynamic these health systems may not have that much negotiation power. Could you talk about the implications of that? How does that change the game here? So a huge contributor to why costs are high in our system is the fact that contracts basically protect the kind of traditional providers. And now the silver lining and the hope with digital health, one of the major kind of hopes with digital health is that you can fundamentally bend the cost curve by virtue of using technology to scale what historically has solely been done through human labor in a physical setting. And so if you have two providers who are delivering the same service, coming to a payer and saying, 
you know, I'm able to offer a lower price for the same level of quality and the same level of service by virtue of the fact that I have a cost structure that's you know, one-tenth the level of my traditional competitor, then you know, that's one of the reasons that payers are gravitating towards that. The other is just access, right? So again, if the catchment area of a given hospital is people who are within a 50 mile radius and can drive to me, but a digital health solution is accessible to anyone who lives in any of the 50 states, that's another reason why payers are attracted to models that increase access as well. So those are the two axes, the, the cost structure axis and then the access axis that provide this unique competitive advantage for these digital health players. Shifting gears a little bit, you've written about sort of the unbundling of, of hospital systems in the past. What happens in this unbundling is that different providers will start to focus on different segments of the market. So maybe it's women's health or older patients or pediatric I'm curious what you think maybe the implications are of that. It's, it's good because I'm assuming you're tailoring care to an individual, but I'm worried that maybe eventually then the market just starts to prioritize individuals that can pay more or where there's a bigger market to be had. And I'm, I'm curious how you've thought about that. Yeah, it's a great point. And again, with all of these paradigms, there are always pros and cons. You know, I'd say the primary principle of that thesis when we wrote about it, we, and we specifically were, were talking about primary care when we wrote about that, you know, that unbundling concept initially. And, you know, the whole idea was that the current definition of primary care as it stands today is this complete blunt instrument that is expected to basically serve any patient that walks in the door with any clinical need. And that's just an unfair burden to place on primary care providers, absent the types of tools and capabilities that would enable them to, you know, have that level of scope of expertise across the entire continuum. And I would argue that that's one of the many, many reasons, including, you know, lack of reimbursement and lots of other things that have resulted in primary care failing to deliver on the promise, which is that by managing populations, you know, in a preventative sense, that you can mitigate the downstream costs of those populations and avoid emergency and, and high acuity outcomes. So th that was the original premise is like, how do you basically set up primary care to succeed, essentially, by limiting the scope of what they can do, and then arming them with the appropriate tools to be able to effectively deliver care for a specific population that you understand using data. So I think that's the benefit. The one side of the equation is by focusing, you're just simply able to provide a better service to that population by virtue of that focus. Now, I think it goes in two directions. One is there's segments of the population that today are accessing standard primary care that should, in this new paradigm, receive better services. But to your point, Adriel, there's also completely underserved populations or unserved populations that don't have the ability to participate in the current primary care system mm. that could also benefit from this unbundling. The clearest example of this that, you know, we just made an investment in this area is really the Medicaid population, which again, historically has, you know, not been a target focus for venture backed startups because of the challenges of, you know, engaging with those populations just by virtue of their social needs and just the demographic, you know, a lot of these folks don't even have a home for you to be able to connect with them in, et cetera. But by virtue of the fact that we now have technologies and payment models that support the ability to invest in both human field-based labor, but, you know, also technology-based solutions for reaching out um, using simple things like text messaging to actually engage that's creating new opportunities, again, in areas that I would argue did not have a huge focus with the traditional primary care system. So I think it does have the benefit of both better serving those who are getting crappy care today, but also being able to extend into populations that are currently completely underserved. On that note, we're going to have these different digital health companies come up over the next few years, each targeting maybe different subsets of the population. 
And one of the big challenges in the whole space of health has been, how do we make data from different organizations work together? Interoperability has been this dream for maybe decades, and it's an unrealized dream so far. I think one of the challenges here is, what is the incentive structure that enables this? How do we demonstrate the value, not just to the patients, which is fairly clear, but to the providers here? I'd be curious if there are any models you've thought about for making this happen. From an overall Tailwinds perspective, I would say that we're very excited about the fact that there's now air cover for incentive alignment for incumbents in particular, you know, to now adopt a certain mandates that actually have teeth behind them and, you know, will result in sort of very basic forms of data liquidity. But I think all of the work of policy to date has been largely focused on traditional EHR data, you know, for good reason, right? And we, we absolutely need to focus on that. But I would argue that the center of gravity is very quickly and rapidly shifting beyond the EHR um, in the form of you know, everything from lab data to genomics data. I mean, you guys have, have had so many folks on this show who you know, kind of represent these new pools of data liquidity that do not fit into the schema of EHR and are, are not subject to the same you know, law and, and policy as, as EHRs just by virtue of where, you know, where they're generated and who owns them. There's an entirely new paradigm of data that's kind of so rapidly forming outside of the traditional, you know, definition of what clinical data is that, you know, I think we are hopeful that just market-driven innovation will create connectivity combined with, you know, what I said earlier, which is, you know, so many of these digital health companies are at the tip of the spear of value-based care implementation, where it is actually necessary to understand the full context of a patient in order to actually bear risk and like be solvent. And so that's where we see the most adoption these days is frankly, the digital health companies who are on the hook financially for populations where their care model only solves a fraction of the overall care journey for the patient. And therefore, the more data that they can get about what else is going on in that patient's life, the better that they can manage their own economics. And how does that work operationally? Let's say I I am one of those companies. Will I set up a contract with another company that accesses another part of the patient's journey and form a symbiotic relationship where I say, I will share your data please don't build machine learning models for my data because that's what I do and I'll promise not to do the same? Or is it going to be a system where there's a centralized place where both parties have to store their data? Are we going to get into some sort of a decentralized blockchain setup that works for everyone? Yeah, you said the magic word. So um, (laughs) I think there's the today and then there's the way we're headed. So today, the way that literally these companies are doing it is I would say twofold. One is, They are contracting with vendors who serve as intermediaries to retrieve patient data from various stores. So there are lots of companies that, you know, have actually created networks on the back end where they have the ability to reach into EHR systems or lab systems or what have you. So there's um, kind of the retrieval network, you know, layer of the ecosystem that lots of companies are contracted with. Now, the reality is, is that no single player has comprehensive access. And so there are typically multi-tenant relationships across multiple vendors that are needed to really stitch together the full complement of sources that one would need to cover a given patient population. Then there's just direct contracting, I would say direct between digital health companies where they have their own bespoke data exchange for mutually covered populations. So we're seeing both of those things in practice today. We're also betting on the future where there is some sort of either centralized and or decentralized storage mechanism that people can essentially share identity across multiple digital health contexts, 
with access control saying there's 180 data points about me. I only want digital health company A to have these 30 versus you know digital health company B to have these 50 and actually be able to really granularly control what context gets shared and what fashion. Uh, and then there's many, many efforts, whether through blockchain or, or other forms where there's a single utility essentially that one can tap into that abstracts out all the underlying networks and then also creates utilities for access control on the front end. I think what I'm still concerned about is in a world where data is the new oil, why would a company ever be incentivized to let data flow out from the company? I mean, yes, in theory, because consumers or patients demand it, but I don't know if patients or consumers even know enough at this point to demand that or necessarily are in a position to to fight for themselves. I'm curious where the incentive will come for these companies to ever share data that is so valuable to them. Yeah, it's. I would answer that question in two parts. So one is the traditional medical system and, and what's driving, frankly, the explosion of initiatives to share data from traditional provider and health systems. And then the digital health side is the second part of it. So on the traditional healthcare side, honestly, for better, or for worse, a lot of it is just, frankly, alternative revenue streams, right? So as I said earlier, a lot of these traditional providers are thinking, okay, my, my legacy fee-for-service, you know, human labor-based business model is no longer the go-forward durable strategy. How do I take my assets and inventory my assets and think about ways to, you know, generate value from the things that I uniquely hold within my enterprise? And data is definitely one of them. So you mean like selling patient data, essentially? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Creating companies that are dedicated to doing that in a responsible fashion that benefits both sides. Yeah. So, you know, there's a, a number of companies that are doing that. And then there's also, I mean, and this applies to both traditional and digital health companies, the other sort of economically rational view on this is referrals, right? If the sharing of data incentivizes referrals in both directions. So if I'm a primary care provider, having a streamlined ability to refer out and then get a closed loop, both benefits me because my patient population you know, needs a service and I'm on the hook for making sure that that patient gets that service so they don't end up in the ED. So I need timely response and a referral relationship to facilitate that. And then on the receiving end, you know, that specialty provider who's getting the referral wants more patients. And that's a very, very simplistic, you know, sort of unit of incentive alignment that I think is driving a lot of the data sharing activity that we're seeing both again in the traditional world, but also on the, on the digital health side. I feel like most of your investments have been in the enterprise space. I'm kind of curious how you think about sort of enterprise versus maybe more consumer facing digital health. In your head, is it just all the same and you evaluate each company individually? Yeah, it's a great, great point. I definitely am an enterprise gal by trade. So, you know, I sort of grew up in enterprise software and my, my company was an enterprise software company. But I think perhaps one of the nuanced takes that we have on healthcare and, and the reason why I think it's exciting to do healthcare at Andreessen Horowitz is that we treat venture like a team sport. So we exploit the fact that we have, you know, world-class experts in enterprise, consumer, fintech, crypto, bio, and health within our firm. Some of the best deals that we've done are those that we collectively identified, evaluated, and won as a team across multiple verticals. And so in that sense, one of the things that I think is hard about healthcare, we always lament the fact that healthcare is hard. And you know, some of that is certainly the laws of physics of the healthcare system, whether it's regulatory and culture and all that kind of stuff. But I think another really, really hard part of healthcare is that to be a truly effective care delivery company, you actually have to have competency in consumer, right? I mean, at the end of the day, you're, you're engaging a patient and delivering some kind of service. So you have to have some competency in consumer. 
you have to have some competency in enterprise because you're dealing with payer contracting or an integration with EHR, blah, blah, blah. And you know, even if on the surface, the packaging of the company is B2B enterprise, there's ultimately pretty much always some element of consumer um, involved in it as well. That's really cool. I've never appreciated that, but you're absolutely right that you do sort of have to be a jack of all trades to be a successful digital health company. Yeah. Are there specific trends that you see in enterprise or specifically in consumer that sort of divides the two fields in your mind? Yeah. I mean, I, I think there's certain insertion points in the industry that make you know one or the other more important in a given business model. So one of our core theses that we wrote about over a year ago is this digital health tech stack concept which is the creation of the new operating system layer of healthcare is really happening within digital health because you know, now there's thousands of companies who all need the same shared infrastructure, whether it's EHR-like capabilities, whether it's revenue cycle type capabilities, whether it's clinical operations. And yet you know, the EHR systems of your obviously were not purpose-built for the kind of virtual first patient-centric value-based care that we are delivering today. So that's driving the creation of this whole ecosystem of vendors that are solely purpose-built for these virtual-first, patient-centric, value-based care models and essentially becoming like the new, quote-unquote, EHR industry. So that's like one enterprise dynamic that I would say is distinguishable. On the consumer side, we also wrote recently about this B to C to B motion that is emerging amongst digital health companies, where the last era of digital health was really, I think, defined by a B to B to C motion, where you were selling through an employer to distribute to employees who were covered under a self-insured plan or a fully insured plan. And you know, you had to make a lot of compromises on the product to get it through the enterprise gate before you could earn the right to put it in front of the employee user. These days, because consumers are actively searching for solutions and have a lot more discretion on what they're paying for out of pocket, certainly at the lower acuity end of the spectrum, you see more willingness to adopt directly. The engagement model does depend on forming a direct relationship with the patient which again has the huge benefit of the product being designed for the patient right from day one versus having to make sure that you're checking the box of 17 security review questions and enterprise IT questions before you even get to the actual requirements for the employee. And so that's another dimension or another motion that we see in the market on the consumer side that we think is going to be increasingly mission critical for digital health companies to differentiate in the market. I think these are really exciting trends. Uh, You spoke earlier about this operating system layer. And just reflecting on this, I think right now for new digital health players, one of the things that makes it difficult for them is that there's so much of a foundation already for how healthcare works. that one has to build on top of this foundation, work with all these different players. But let's say someone had unlimited resources and could redesign from the ground up. Let's say, you know, make my own clinic, my own technology that solves all the problems. What parts of this operating system layer would you rebuild? Yeah, I mean, I would argue that this is exactly what's happening is, you know, people are reimagining from a clean sheet what they need to build. And actually the story of like how we came to conviction on this thesis in in the beginning was hearing the pitches of thousands of digital health companies And this was like kind of 2019, 2020, early 2020 era. And every single one of them was essentially requiring the same internal componentry to be able to stand up their clinical operations model. So it was a 
we call it a PRM, so a patient relationship management system, distinct from an EHR, which is more associated with like a fee-for-service billing chassis. So a PRM type system where you can be a system of record for the relationship that you have with your patients, some sort of billing and you know revenue cycle type system, some sort of communication system for both patient to provider, but also between providers. And then, you know, supply chain type software that would be either equipment or even like staffing and workforce management. And so those are four of the several buckets of categories that we've outlined in our thesis around here are the kind of table stakes set of capabilities that one needs to stand up a digital health company. And initially what we saw was everyone was either building it from scratch or taking a legacy EHR off the shelf, mostly like an Athena Health or Dr. Chrono or one of those kind of cloud-based EHRs from the last era and essentially customizing the heck out of them to get them to do what they want them to do on the front end. And that was what indicated to us, like, gosh, like people are putting duct tape on things to make this work and spending an ordinary amount of money. If someone just had an out-of-the-box solution for this, then there would be immediately this market available to them. And so that's what, you know, kind of drove the initial thesis was people actually literally building from scratch things that they couldn't find off the shelf using traditional technology systems. When I think about the winners in terms of infrastructure building, things like AWS come to mind. In a world in which these are realized as sort of potential opportunities with big markets, do you see a world in which these traditional, I'm going to call them traditional software companies, the Amazon, the Google, leveraging this infrastructure that they've built to be able to get into the healthcare space? Or do you feel like it's a layer on top of that, which other players are just as well-equipped to do? Yeah, it's a great question. I think this is playing out right now. And there's no doubt that for the traditional healthcare system, there is a distribution benefit for a digital health company to partner with someone like a, I'm gonna use Microsoft as an example, just because they have a pretty strong footprint, for instance, in the provider space. If you are an Azure partner and you can leverage their cloud chassis to distribute your product you know, to a broader base of providers, I think that's an actual viable strategy. But I think the cultural dynamics of digital health itself is going to be that you know, the, these innovators are going to want to own as much of the vertically integrated infrastructure as they can. And so I think you see less of the willingness there for folks to partner. You know, there's plenty of whatever cautionary tales about partnering too early with some of these companies and IP risk and them just wanting to target acquisitions and whatnot. So I think there's legitimate risk that early stage companies want to mitigate if they are solely trying to distribute to digital health companies that they want to avoid, you know, as far as partnerships there. But I do think that in areas where those established tech companies have a clear advantage, whether it's distribution into enterprise healthcare providers, or like in the case of Amazon, eyeballs amongst consumers, right? And wallet share using prime membership or what have you. I think the good thing that will come from that is that they will continue to push the boat on what is a commodity solution in our market, right? So the fact that they launched Amazon Care with a widely available primary care-like service caused everyone else in the industry who was offering a similar service to like up their game and quickly innovate and figure out what their roadmap was going to be to differentiate and have a more defensible strategy. So I think that's a net good thing. And that's frankly one of the reasons that our space has so much stasis historically, right, was that there was really no legitimate competition, you know, at the lower levels of the stack. And I welcome that, you know, they're raising the bar on what constitutes a differentiated and long-term defensible offering in this space. 
Shifting gears a little bit, you were talking about your thesis or the biofunds thesis on different subjects. And I feel like A16Z in general as a whole, but especially the biofund is just really good at like every six months or every year, you guys sort of just publish this awesome new thesis or view on the industry in the world. And I'm just curious from like a practical standpoint, do these come to you like in the middle of the night as like a inspiration or do you guys like sit down every six months and go, okay, guys, like we need to publish another amazing blog post. Like, what are we going to say? Or like, like, when do you find the time to develop these theses as opposed to just finding companies you like and investing in them and calling it a day? I love this question because like, so part of our ethos here as a firm is like, we're all ex-founders and operators, right? So we've all been in the arena. Like I had my list of seven problems that I've spent my career trying to solve that I would love to see a solution for. Yeah. So many of us actually came in with our a priori list of stuff where we're like, we would love to find a company that has a viable go-to-market strategy, um, you know, a defensible business model and a founder who can run through walls and can glow in the dark, right? So that's where, frankly, a lot of my initial set of blog posts and content came from was just things that had I actually chosen to start another company, I probably would have done one of these 17 things. That's where a lot of our colleagues are sourcing their ideas as well. It's just things that we have lived in our past life that we know have not yet been solved, but for whatever reason, we think there's a why now moment. We also have just like an incredibly robust team here that is constantly pushing us to have a content strategy. And it really you know, produces yield, of course, right? Each one, we treat each blog post as a mini RFI to the world saying, yeah, we are looking to invest in this space. And th- these are the characteristics that we believe describe a viable company. If you are working on this problem, whether or not it actually, I mean, we would love for you to come argue with us why our point of view is wrong as well, right? Yeah. So we get a ton of great, highly engaged inbound on that basis of just saying like, here's a problem. Who is working on this? Who has a point of view and who wants to talk to us about it? So that, that's kind of the way we approach it is both sort of things that we fundamentally on a personal level believe are areas that can support a standalone business and then a means to engage with the broader ecosystem on a specific you know, problem spaces that we're excited about. I love that. And so I guess for our listeners who don't know, before you were a general partner at A16Z, you co-founded and were chief product officer of Kairos, which was a tool that helped match providers and patients. Why did you decide to move into venture and, and become an investor? And do you miss being an operator? Or do you think you'll ever go back to being an operator? Yeah. Um, so the, the story of my transition was, as I mentioned to you guys, I was based in Boston. Kairos was my life work for nine years. We got that company to scale. It's still a going concern. My co-founder is still running it and it's doing quite well. And so when it got to a scale point, you know, I'm an early stage person. I wanted to build again, decided to move out West and had the initial intention of actually building another company. Hence that 17 bullet point list of things that I wanted to explore potentially building that ultimately became my blog post. But when I was moving out here and just networking with folks, I got connected with the firm as they were thinking about sort of raising their third bio fund, which was two and a half years ago. And you know, my initial reaction was like, hell no, I never want to be a VC. I'm an operator. I want to do another company, (laughs) you know, but I'm interested in what you guys do and the way you guys think. So let's talk because frankly, I had not considered A16Z a healthcare firm, right? I had raised capital from lots of VCs over the course of nine years, but A16Z was never on my list. So Hmm. more than anything, I was just intellectually intrigued by the notion that A16Z was interested in the space. And so long story short, I ended up spending about six months essentially, you know, kind of helping build the thesis and, you know, working with some of the early companies that we had opportunistically invested in and just seeing, you know, how much opportunity there was and getting convinced to come to this side, really to build the venture firm that I wish I had when I was a founder, like simply put. And that's the way we think about it is how do we build the type of platform that 
would have given us a complete unfair advantage in the market when we were building our companies. Interesting. And how do we use that as a means to differentiate in the market? So that's the way I view my work now is literally building the firm that would have saved me years of my life had I had access to something like this, the time that we were building. And, you know, we do that both by way of us as investors and how we support our companies, but we have a pretty incredible, robust operating platform with dozens of people who support all of our companies post-investment and just create a complete unfair advantage for them in the market by way of access to potential customers, potential talent, potential capital partners, potential you know, business development partners, et cetera. So that's the joy of this work is knowing that if and when I do it again in the future to answer the second part of your question, this is the kind of platform that I want to take advantage of in the future. Are there things about operating that you miss? like, Or like, what's a mindset shift that you've had to sort of do in going from an operator to thinking like an investor? Yeah, I mean, a couple of things. So one is that the lows are never as low and the highs are never as high as when you are a founder, like in the arena yourself. So huh. I miss the drama of the, the day-to-day. But of course, it's also nice to get a, a break for both mental and you know physical reasons um, <laughs> from doing that for a long period of time because it definitely was not the healthiest thing for me. Um, And then just thinking about a portfolio lens versus going super deep and being the world's expert on one area of the market for a decade is a very distinct skill set. That's frankly one of the things I love is just the intellectual breadth of what we do. And the fact that every day I'm meeting a dozen entrepreneurs who are teaching me something I would have never otherwise had the shot of learning. I would say one main difference is how I've had to make decisions. So I'm a product person by training. I prided myself on the ability to make very fast decisions using limited data, but also being very quick to recognize when that decision was wrong and not changing course. And so that was the muscle that I felt I built, you know, over the course of 12 years of being a product person. Here, the decisions that you make are completely irreversible. You know, I have to go into every investment decision knowing full well, you know, encapsulating the risks, of course, and swallowing the fact that there will always be risks inherent to any early stage investment, especially. But, you know, knowing that you're signing up for potentially a 20 year ride, right? And, you know, knowing that you're, no matter what, you're gonna put your full heft behind that company. And that's a meaningful, you know, shift in, in terms of how you need to think about decisions. Part of some of these uh, risky decisions you're taking are investing in wild ideas. And so I wanna end our uh, conversation today by asking you, what are the uh, two wildest ideas that you have invested in in the last few years? Ooh. Can I do one that I've invested in and then one that I hope to invest in <laughs> that I haven't found yet? Great. Okay. So wildest ideas, gosh, if okay, I'll use one of my partner's investments because you know I'm only two years in, so I still have yet to, to make something that I think is truly crazy. But so I love this company called Appeal Sciences. Appeal is a sin bio company actually. And it sits in our bio fund because you know, arguably it has pretty significant implications for health from a consumer lens, but They're a material sciences company. And what they do is they create a coating for perishable goods that extends the shelf life of said good by 3X. So their initial product was avocados. This is what they're famous for. And, you know, they put a spray of a coating on avocados and we all know avocados last like a day, but they actually enable you to keep that avocado in your refrigerator for five days um, in usable form. So this is so cool. (laughs) Yeah, it's a cool product, right? And, And it seems simple, but what's actually like super magical about what they do is the go-to-market is completely non-trivial, right? So you've got this very complicated and long supply chain. You've got retail grocers, like the Whole Foods of the world. You have, you know, distributors of food. You have farmers and, you know, everything in between. 
And each one of them, just like healthcare, has a very, very different set of incentives and different reasons why they would adopt or not adopt the product. Actually, a lot of risk lies with farmers, right? Because farmers are the ones who ultimately have to wire this into their operations to coat the fruit, but they don't necessarily see the value of it, you know, because at the end of the day, if a fruit lasts longer downstream, like it doesn't really change their economics. And so how do you create a business model that actually aligns incentives across that full value chain? And you need to do it like full value chain. You can't just sell to one player in that equation and get it right. So what's been most admirable about this company is that they've literally rewired like the entire value chain of food right now produce primarily, but their vision is inclusive of you know, meats and even flowers, like anything that's a perishable good that has a complex supply chain that could be treated with this coating is fair game. So that to me is like this great example of how a magical scientific innovation, you know, has to be paired with also an equally magical business model innovation to actually, you know, come to fruition. And it's just so rare where you see that. So that that's one of my favorite magical companies in our portfolio. The one that I would love to see kind of in the same vein, as you can tell, I'm kind of a food as medicine fanatic. The one that I would love to see is some sort of a 3D printer for food in everyone's home that could programmatically create personalized meals and menus for you, um, accounting for your health, and then reimbursed on the back end by health plans. And you know, the great thing is we imagined this concept years ago, but now that there are actual reimbursement rails for this, like health plans are literally reimbursing Medicare Advantage members for groceries, for instance, right? Now that that exists and 3D printing technology is where it's at, and the notion of prescribed foods and diet is coming into reality, I think there could be one day this opportunity to sort of, again, rewire the entire value chain and, and put this in your kitchen so that, you know, I'm, I'm terrible. The reason that I love this concept is that I, I've turned off of like the blue aprons of the world, like so many times because I hate cooking. <laughs> like those things are conceptually really, really alluring, but I just don't have the freaking time to cook them. So if someone could just allow something to pop out of my oven every single day that is tailored to what I like, what I need, dietarically speaking, and you know, also fits into my reimbursement scheme, that would be my dream. I would buy that in a heartbeat. Right? <laughs> that sounds amazing. <laughs> I think lots of people would. Julie, thank you. This was so, so fun. Thank you for, for taking the time to do this. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, guys. A big thank you to Julie Yu for being with us today. And thank you for listening. We're your co-hosts, Pranav and Atrial. And until next time, stay safe and stay healthy. The AI Health Podcast is produced and edited by Oishi Banerjee and Mark Robbins. Music by Ethan Aichi. If you like what you just heard, let a friend know. Subscribe to the show and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Spotify or connect with us on Twitter at AI Health Podcast.